You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Hey guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and JuniorStockReview.com. Uh, today with me, I have Kobe Kushner of uh, Red Cloud. Uh, Kobe is a, a mining engineer and an analyst. And today we'll be discussing the lithium sector. And, you know, I think the best place to start is the basics. Uh, the lithium market, I would say out of maybe, maybe not all the metals, but, uh, you know, it doesn't fit into the mainstream yet, I don't think. And so I think we should get off to uh, starting talking about the different deposit types and get a good base before we get into some more of the details. So Colby, um, there's a variety of different lithium deposits out there. Can you take us through what those are? Sure. I mean, the two big ones are the hard rocks. And with that primarily comes from Australia. And then the other half of production is the brines. And that comes from uh, the lithium triangle in South America. Um, there's also some operations in other parts of the world as well. Uh, give or take, it's about five total operations, five or six that ac account for like over 80% of global lithium production. Okay. And so just a question, the brines in the hard rock deposit, um, is a brine just a, is, is it a, is it formed from weathering of the, the hard rock? Is that how a brine is formed? No, the, the hard rocks, I, honestly, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how they're formed. There's different theories as to what makes these salars there when i say brines you know these are saltwater lakes in south america most of the time there's also other uh brine uh sources like what we have in western canada um, which come from uh oil field reservoirs and then there's also geothermal brines but generally uh you know we're talking about the salars that we see in argentina and chile and uh and bolivia um Generally, people believe that they originate from volcanic ash. Um, and then the hard rock lithium, they come from a type of granite uh, called pegmatite, usually. And then there's also some unconventional sources of lithium, like the sedimentary type, which includes clays that we see a lot in, uh, in southwest U.S., Okay, but like you said, the 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 majority of production, at least at this point, comes from the the brines and the the hard rock. The clay, yes, is is kind of the 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 smaller portion of that. There's no there's no current uh, commercial clay producer right now. Okay, why is that? Is that is this a matter of cost or what's the? I think companies are still trying to figure out how to crack into it um, on the metallurgy side. Um, and lots of companies are doing good work. I think major, or I, th I think companies are starting to put more faith into it. Uh, you know, Gangfang Lithium, a Chinese major lithium company, did help design the Thacker Pass uh, flow sheet, for example. And they also purchased the the Bacanora uh, clay operation in Mexico. So, so there is a lot of money being thrown at it, and you know, there's different ways on the metallurgy side to to actually get the lithium out of it, but it's, it's tough. It's not easy to get lithium out of clays. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a good answer. Um, so, you know, we've got the deposit types kind of where the production is coming right now. So they get this lithium out of the ground and what's the product that they're delivering to these battery makers or um, actually, you know, actually, before we get into that, batteries is the first thing that comes to mind but what are the uses for lithium like prior to maybe 2018 or 2019 yeah. what was lithium being used for 
Yeah, you're right. I, I, I believe it was 2018 when most uh, global lithium demand, the majority actually shifted to batteries. Everything before that, you know, batteries were obviously a growing market, but uh, often in, in glass and ceramics industry, as well as medical, you know, people take lithium uh, as, a, as a medicine. Okay, so and so now battery represents the the biggest portion of yes. that. Um, so the question I was going to go to is, uh, so the, they 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 extract the lithium out of the ground. They have uh, some secondary metallurgy. What are the what is the the product that is created to deliver to the battery makers? What are the the producers trying to produce? Yeah, the final end product, which usually originates uh, from China, um, is is a is either a carbonate or a hydroxide, a lithium hydroxide or a lithium carbonate. And that's what gets used in the batteries. What's the, what's the, the difference? Cause I, I've seen in different uh, literature, you know, they talk to, you know, one guy says, Oh, you, it has to be a carbonate or the other guy says it has to be a hydroxide. And I don't know what the exact current statistic was, but the last time I looked at it, the market was almost 50, 50. Um, so is there kind of like a high level idea of what the difference between the two is and, and, and how it's used? Yeah. So they are used in different types of battery chemistries. Um, the nickel-rich uh, cathode, they, they typically require um, hydroxide. So that's kind of like your NCM batteries, for example, they'll require, then those are kind of like your higher, used in like the higher end EVs to get longer range. Um, whereas LFP, they use carbonate battery. So carbonate would be less energy density uh, but they're used in LFP batteries, and that's kind of like a, a nickel-free and, and cobalt-free uh, solution. And we are seeing increasing uh, demand for LFPs, especially in, in China. I believe they actually now dominate uh, market share in terms of production in China right now. Um, if you asked us, <laughs> you know, if you, years ago, and I'm talking, you know, five years ago, maybe, uh, no one saw this coming. No one saw the rise of LFPs. the The idea was that oh, it's you know everyone wants hydroxide um, because that's what we need for the the uh, the NMC type batteries. So, um, but it, you know it goes to show you know there is still demand for um, lower range EVs, especially in places like China. Oh, it makes sense. Like the, well, whether it's substitution or the, the just range of demands for consumers, like that you know, markets are so tough to predict these things come up. And yeah, like you said, no one could have predicted it. Um, so do you foresee like the, the market basically staying like a 50, 50 moving forward, or do you think one will be more dominant than the other? Uh, it's, it's hard to say, honestly, just, you know, it, battery chemistries change all the time and there's always innovations and uh you know you know maybe in certain markets like north america i think i think hydroxide will be the preferred choice for now um but i i still think lfp has a place here in north america and uh one one example of an innovation would be solid state batteries which don't use either um but they still they use lithium in, in metal form lithium metal um I don't think lithium is going away from uh, EV batteries anytime soon. 
Okay. So in terms of substitution, uh, because it's interesting because I had this conversation when I was talking about nickel with, with an analyst and we talked to, you know, the LFP and how that's kind of come in and and change things. Um, So like you said, you don't foresee in the short term anyway, something coming in and, you know, superseding or substituting lithium. I don't like, there's a lot of talk about other types of batteries, whether that's sodium based or, um, or vanadium redox flow batteries, just as a, as a note, like if you've ever Googled a, a picture of a vanadium redox flow battery, they're huge, right? Like they're bigger than the, the room that I'm in. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's not something that'll ever go on an EV in, in my view. Um, lithium is hard to substitute. You know, you can maybe substitute the nickel, substitute the cobalt, um, but lithium is the lightest metal on the periodic table, right? It's number three. It's the lightest, and it gives you that energy density. Uh, the other thing about it is, sure, prices are high, and that might incentivize people to want to substitute out of it. But in, in the grams, in the total cost of an EV, it's still a small portion. Um, and and it's not it's not geographically sparse. Lithium production is 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 uh, very much concentrated on a few jurisdictions, sure. But I, I think that's going to change. Okay, that, that brings me to, I think, the next most important question is jurisdiction. You know, worldwide over the last year, two years, we've seen, I don't know if it's necessarily deglobalization, but it sort of feels like it or nationalization of, of things, but it'd be manufacturing yeah. or whatever. And so when it comes to lithium, um, maybe take us through, like you, you touched on, you know, the, the lithium triangle in South America. Um, Australia, I think, is probably the biggest source of hard rock lithium. Um, but how is that sort of developing from a jurisdictional standpoint or how do you see it developing? I think countries are locking or cracking down on trying to secure their domestic supply chain of critical metals. And uh, lithium is deemed a critical metal in lots of countries, right? Including Canada, including the US. Um, so countries are all trying to secure their own domestic supply because there's not enough lithium production right now. Um, we saw this week um, Zimbabwe cracked down on it as well, right? They said that they'd stop exporting their lithium, and they, you know, that's they don't produce that much on a global scale. They only produce about one point four percent of global lithium raw material supply, but uh, it just goes to show. And, and earlier this year, we saw Mexico say that they're going to nationalize uh, lithium, and they only have like one actual advanced asset, which is the one I spoke about earlier, the Bacanora. Asset, yeah. Canada, Canada, you know, a politically stable uh, jurisdiction, they forced divestment uh, from, uh, they forced Chinese divestment from three lithium juniors not that long ago. Yeah, that, that's that's a great point. So let's talk about Canada a little bit closer because, you know, besides Namaska and Quebec, I don't and that that story is maybe even long gone out of people's minds. I maybe. Um, but where what does lithium exploration in look like in Canada moving forward? Where is it going to be concentrated? Do you think? Right now it's very much concentrated in Quebec. Um, some in Ontario as well. But we're seeing so much interest in Quebec. Companies are itching to get in there. Uh, the Aussies have totally moved in, and they're they're still eager to break into Quebec as well. Um, and then there's also a couple of restarts being planned, Namaska being one of them, and the other one would be the past producing North American lithium. Um, so those will be coming online 
you know, in the next couple of years, give or take. And then uh, I think we're also going to see increasing investment out West, which is kind of underneath a lot of people's radar. Um, and that's from the Canadian brines. So as I mentioned before, Canada has brines. Vast is some of the biggest lithium deposits in the world, actually. And so, but these brines don't take the 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 form of a solar like they do in South America, right? Like you're having to drill down to these. Is it sort of like drilling for an oil or gas well? Is that the same idea? It's very similar. And I I want to touch on because everyone, well, I presume a lot of people listening to this, uh, you know, understand hard rock mining to some extent. Um, So to touch more on the solars, one of the reasons that they're very concentrated in the lithium triangle in South America is because it has the weather to allow us to actually concentrate the lithium. So the way that they do it in South America is as well as Nevada is they use evaporation, right? They, they, they drill a well, they pump it out and they let it rest in these shallow ponds for months and months until, and let the sun do its work in order to get a a lithium concentrate. And, you know, Canada doesn't have evaporation uh, amenability, right? It's not a hot, arid desert. You, you just can't do it. So this is where DLE or direct lithium extraction comes into play. Okay. So this is, I want to say it's a new technology, but it's actually been around, uh, you know, for a while now. Um, no one right now is using just pure DLE commercially. Um, how it's being used right now, at least in in uh, South America and perhaps China, is they use it in conjunction with evaporation. But uh, you know, very you know, record high lithium prices have incentivized um, investment into this technology. And it's not it's not just one technology; it's it's several technologies. There's many ways to do it. Um, and if I want to just quickly you know describe it. Um, it's think about it like a coffee filter, right? So, you know, you run your, your coffee with the grinds in it and it goes through this coffee filter. Um, you end up with water, well, coffee on one side, and then you get your coffee grinds on top of this filter, right? It's like a filter. And then you can, you just scrub off your coffee grinds, pretend your coffee grinds are your lithium. Of course, the process is, you know, it's, not exactly like that, but that's a, a, an analogy. Okay. And, and so w- what do you think it's going to take? Is it just time before that becomes commercially viable? Is that what, the only thing standing or does it need more money uh, to be put in to make that technology expandable and, and to have a high enough production rate to make it economic? I think it's, I think it's both time and investment. We are seeing investment now and companies are moving quick. Uh, you know, we've ha- we've seen field demonstration plants already um, in Saskatchewan, and I think we're, we're going to be seeing one next year in Alberta. Um, and that company is E3 Lithium, which is a stock I cover. So I have a I have a buy rating. It's ETL on the venture, and I have an eight dollar twenty cent target. Um, they're looking to to run their uh, DLE pilot in the first half of next year. Okay, so it is so, the juniors that are pushing that forward. Yes. Okay, interesting. Yes, generally. So, so like one major lithium producer, for example, Livent, they do use DLE down in Argentina, um, but they use it in conjunction with evaporation. 
So, yeah, it's, it's, I think innovation generally comes from smaller companies, right? It's, it's, there's a lot of red tape with bigger companies. And I also think innovation also comes from uh, out of necessity, right? Like if you, to, to quote Raymond Chow, who, who's a CFO at E3, and I won't quote him exactly, but he, he brought up a good point. Like if you told him years ago that there's no way you could get oil from Sands or that there is a way to get oil from Sands, he would have laughed at you, right? And, you know, it's, it looked, lo and behold, we're producing oil from Sands. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good point. So is, does the proliferation of, of direct extraction, does that maybe, is that a key for maybe clay deposits? Does that open up a door, do you think, to clay? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I don't think it's the only uh, potential out, uh, the potential solution for the clays. Um, but uh, I think it could help, you know, companies like uh, Cypress in Nevada, Cypress Development, they're looking at using DLE. Okay. Yeah, this is Clayton Valley you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so going back to the the jurisdictional question, I think one of the interesting things is, that, you know, the you talked about, you know, I don't know if it was at 50% you said comes from the uh, Solaris. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, a major part of the world production and probably will be for, you know, at least in the short term future. We've seen the Chinese make a number of investments, um, especially in Argentina, the Argentinian side of the, of the, uh, the, the Solars or the Brines Lithium Triangle. So do you foresee the same things moving forward? It, like, is there potential issues there in the future, do you think, in terms of maybe ownership, but the nationalization? Like, is there potential for anything to happen in the, the lithium triangle? Because you know, Bolivia itself is, is which is the, the north part of, of the triangle, and it has its own issues. But do you foresee any issues happening in the other? Like with the Chinese owning a big portion of it, you've obviously the other countries in South America want a, 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 probably a piece of this in the future. Um, how do you see that developing? Um, look, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if South America wanted to form their own OPEC okay. of lithium. Yeah. I don't know how that'll play out with the Chinese, of course, but you know, they, they are, they, they do produce about half the world's lithium. So. Yeah. So they're a major player, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So in terms I think of, they'll, they'll continue to be, and I think other South American countries will not even just from Solaris, but I think hard rock exploration in South America is also ramping up especially in Brazil, but also Argentina. Are, is the, is the brine uh, or the brine concentrating mechanism in the secondary refining, is that a, is that necessarily more complex than the hard rock? Like it, what I'm trying to say is like, is there an advantage to the, like, obviously when you have nature being part of your secondary refinement, this is a huge advantage economically. So in comparison, I guess, technologically, technologically, and from an economic standpoint, is there a big difference between the brines and the hard rock? I'm going to say yes. I think so. Generally hydroxide uh, comes from spodumene or the hard rock sources. Okay. And so it's a lot easier to take your, the way that the hard rocks work generally is that they the mines themselves produce like a, a 6% spodumene concentrate spot or, or LI2O concentrate. And they'll ship that off 
to do some to do the downstream processing. They turn that into a lithium sulfate, and that it's a lot easier to go from spodumene to the concentrate to uh, lithium sulfate, and then towards uh, hydroxide. Whereas a lot of the brines, it's it's a lot tougher to go uh, to hydroxide and could be okay. could be more expensive. Okay, I see. I see. So then, you know, the the fifty percent production uh, is definitely a big, a big. Uh, I'm not negotiating, but a, it's a it's a big advantage for the, for those countries. Um, but it's not necessarily on the economic side of things where they have an advantage of not only in production but also in the economics. So it's they they do have a playoff there too against the the hard rock sources um, in in terms of economics. Look, it's not like one. It's not. It's not so black and white. Like you can have a, a brine producer that's able to produce uh, lithium chemical for cheaper than uh, hard rock, okay. and vice versa. And vice so, versa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. The, the cost curve is is quite is relatively scattered in terms of where uh, you know you get the lowest cost uh, on an on a lithium carbonate equivalent basis. Um, uh, with regards to being hard rock or brine. Okay. Um, so kind of talking about, it's still on the same kind of uh, talk on security of supply and, and jurisdictional uh, risk or, or by jurisdiction. Have we seen battery makers begin to make investments or strategic investments in the juniors? Like, is this is this going on on a global scale? Compared to last cycle, we're seeing more and more big players uh making investments into non-producing assets. So I'll say yes, I think so. Um, so not, not just battery makers, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking uh, automakers, EV makers, Tesla signing a deal with Liontown resources, for example, as well as, and it's not a lithium company, but Talon metals, for example, Another point talking about uh, security of supply is, you know, the European Union came out with sort of a guideline that they want to push towards um, in restricting the carbon footprint associated with the battery metal makeup. So the ingredients that go into their batteries. Uh, so, Kobe, where's the production of lithium coming from in Europe? <laughs> There's not a lot of production coming out of Europe. Um, you know, I'm, we're talking maybe just Portugal right now. And it's a very, very small amount. Uh, next countries to maybe start producing, um, you know, in the UK, um, perhaps uh, in Germany, if Vulcan Energy can get their DLE up and running. And then uh, perhaps Finland in about 2025, give or take. But it's, it's going to be tough for Europe to achieve that, in my view. Uh, it's it's an inter interesting point to, and I think it's very bullish, you know, considering a lot of that demand worldwide. Um, not not only that, like to add on to it, there's so many converters being brought online in uh, in in Europe, and it's like, okay, where are you going to source? source where, where's your feed coming from? <laughs> like, how come no one's thinking about this? It seems to be a. Di it, I think everyone's working the wrong way. Like they're looking at, okay, we need we got electric cars coming. Okay, we need battery plants. Okay, we we need some converters here, and they're they're thinking about the resource last when maybe they should be thinking about that a lot earlier on. Oh yeah, that that's an excellent point. It really 
the, the whole the whole thing not just on the lithium side but the whole battery whether you know it's nickel or copper um, it's going to be get really interesting when it comes to supply so that kind of maybe brings it's a good opening for the the next question and i was wondering if you could recap kind of what has happened in the the lithium market in 2022 like i've seen some valuations i've been watching the market from afar some companies have you know seen their share price spike huge so what what has been driving the market in 2022 i think it's a lack of supply companies are scrambling to to secure that new supply we saw lithium prices jump uh, or chemical prices jump over well over 700 percent this year um, we saw some equities make a jump but uh you know generally most are not up 700 percent, but still a significant amount um which is just to go on a tangent there, Brian, as well, you know, if, if we look at gold, generally the gold equities are leveraged to uh, gold price on a more than a one to one basis, right? Like if, if gold price moves 1%, the equities move more than 1%. Um, I haven't seen that necessarily translate over to lithium equities. So while everyone is saying, hey, it's still the, the lithium market, they're they're all too hot right now. Like, okay, but maybe they haven't appreciated enough fundamentally. Uh, to, to go back to uh, your question, companies have been rambling for new supply. I think we've been, um, we traditionally, you know, when people are looking at metal prices or material prices, uh, they're looking at the cost curve. How much does it cost to get a ton of lithium on an LCE basis out of the ground? And we have become so far disconnected, right? In gold, it's it's about if if you're lucky, you're selling it for um, twice the cost to get it out. And for lithium chemical, you're looking at over ten times that. So it, it's almost like the cost curve doesn't matter right now, and it just shows that end users are are scrambling to to secure any kind of supply that they can there's no idle supply available and that's why prices have rocketed so does that that that's interesting because there's always this kind of way or at least in my head is weighing the effect of let's say a recession and it goes into my next question is how do you foresee 2023 because there's a threat of recession on the horizon or maybe we're in it and so how does that play off with the supply and demand fundamentals like can a recession supersede that it, it's it's hard to say, to be honest. I mean, in 2023, a lot of analysts are forecasting a, a lit, the lithium market to return to surplus um, on the back of weakened demand numbers. Um, that surplus isn't going to be significant. You know, they're talking they're talking two thousand tons um, on an LCE basis. The other aspect of, the, of that, and we touched on it earlier, is that not all lithium chemical is equal, right? So uh, other analysts are saying like, yep, on a total LCE basis, we're going to see a, a small little surplus as opposed to the, of, of 2,000 uh, tons, give or take, as opposed to the 15,000 uh, ton deficit we saw this year. Um, but if you look, if you just control for battery grade lithium, it's still expected to be in deficit. So, in terms of how that's going to affect pricing, I'm not sure. I may, I mean, I'm I'm expecting a little more volatility. Um, volatility does work both ways, but I'm not expecting prices to to crash back down to historic highs because supplies are still tight and companies 
Um, uh, sure, lots of them do think on the short, short term, but I think the smart companies that are trying to scramble for resources right now are thinking on a much longer time horizon. And maybe you could just offer your opinion because the one interesting thing I saw, like, you know, the, in the States, uh, the inflation reduction act, and it had, you know, it had the talk about how they're going to extract more money from the population, but then the money that they were going to spend the 300 ish billion, uh, was put into basically renewables and, and, uh, you know, I, I, renewable energy, but it, on the theme of electrification. And uh, I was just reading this morning before we started our talk, you know, the Biden's talking about put, building chargers. The U.S. government's going to put X amount of money into building uh, EV charging stations. So it seems when you when you involve governments, it seems that, you know, no matter if it's a recession or not, the spending will continue. And uh, to me, that's also another bullish factor. Do you see it in the same light? I would agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the tracking the lithium price, where do you think is the best place for, for people to find that lithium price? Cause for, for me, I'm not sure myself and I've, I've tried to find it's mostly in articles that I, I pick up on the lithium price, but where could someone follow the lithium price? Um, if you go to, so for the average retail investor, if you want an idea of lithium chemical prices, at least in China, um, tradingeconomics.com. I get that right? Yeah. Tradingeconomics.com, they do have that. Um, but you're right. It's a very opaque market. Um, it's not, lithium is not a commodity. There's several different, it, it trades differently in every country. Um, it trades differently depending on the chemical makeup. Um, and what, and of course the actual lithium chemical. So uh, another place is to look at, you know, you're not going to get daily prices, but you can look at Pulbera. Pulbera's uh, spodumene auction prices, which is what a lot of people pay attention to. Um, I rely on benchmark mineral intelligence. In my view, they're the best source. They compile uh, everything. They compile prices all across the spectrum. But, uh, you know, you'll get weekly updates from them. It's going to cost you, though. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so for the average retail investor listening to this, I'd say your best bets are Pulbera and Trading Economics. Okay, that's great. Um, so Red Cloud is is offers a number of different things to retail investors. Um, I attend as many conferences as I can. The, you know, the the pre PDAC I'm sure is is going to be happening in the next three months. Where can uh, retail investors go to find out more about Red Cloud's offerings and conferences? Sure. So if you want to learn about our conferences, go to redcloudfs.com. We do, you know, more than just conferences. You'll see, you'll see we do a podcast, we do um, webinars and interviews. Uh, we are on all your social media. We even have a TikTok now. <laughs> and uh, of course, Twitter, Instagram. And then on my side, so I work on the Red Cloud security side, which is a, the brokerage arm. You can go to redcloudresearch.com, and from there you can register for an account. It's it's free. We don't charge people for it, um, and you can read our research. You can read the, the stocks that we like, um, all at redcloudresearch.com. Excellent. Kobe, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I think we hit on a lot of good points for any investor in interested in lithium. Um, thanks for being with us and hope to have you on in the new year. Thanks, Brian. Pleasure being here. Cheers. 
Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.